If I lose my shoes today, forgive me, I'm not trying to be unprofessional, I'm not trying to be, uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to be anything ungodly, but there's a little bit of a tremor inside of me, and so if I lose my shoes, it's just so I can keep my footing. Is that okay? All right, so if I had a jacket on and I began to sweat, I'd remove my jacket. But um, I'm just going to trust God that he'll keep me standing and, and uh, I, won't, I won't lose my, my feet, my footing. We're looking today at Isaiah chapter 6. I told you that we were going to be looking at a man who saw something that changed his life. And after he had saw this vision, he said, woe is me. Woe is me. And I want to invite us to this morning to look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And we are, the, the title is, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. And the best way that we could see the Lord today in our lives is to see him through his living word. Because he is alive. Well, that was a little weak. So some of you that don't believe it, I pray that you will believe it. And the next time I say he is alive, you will shout. Maybe you'll stand. Maybe you'll jump. I don't know. But I pray that something today that Isaiah saw will transcribe into your heart and become alive for you. That you yourself would be as Isaiah, changed, transformed, and never the same. Because we can't stand before a living God and be who we think we are. We have to stand before a living God and be who he has created us to be. Praise the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's read the first four verses. Maybe I'll even jump all the way to verse 5. In the year king that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. And the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I, being Isaiah, said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We're going to look at seven glimpses, seven peekaboo of God. 
seven glimpses of God from these first four verses, but before we do, we have to have a little bit of a history lesson. A history lesson because if you don't understand who this guy, King Uzziah is, it will be of no relevance to you that he died. So what? Who cares? It's like reading the obituary of some man that died that you never never knew, never met, and so what? It's just in the newspaper. Oh, too bad for that family. But in this time, And in this era, King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. He had been appointed king of Judah at the age of 16 after his father had been murdered. And he had done many great achievements. He walked upright in the sight of God. So the scriptures tell us you could read his whole whole biography when you go home, not while the preaching of the word is, of in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you'll see all that he accomplished in that chapter. He was the most, one of the most successful and most prosperous kings that reigned in the kingdom of Judah at that time. And he sought God in everything that he did. He was king under the rulership of the days of Zechariah. And Zechariah, if we look at his book, he had a great understanding into visions. And so to be a king operating during the times of Zechariah and during the times when visions were being released, you can understand that this is very dynamic that God should bring us this scripture of Isaiah having a vision of the Lord Most High. So some of his achievements that the Lord helped him to do is he defeated the Philistines, the Ariabims, and the Mayunites, the Amorites. David paid tribute to Azariah, or if you want to know him as King Uzziah, that's fine too. And and when he came, he had conquest so much, he had overtaken so much that his name was known across the land as far as Egypt. He built towers in Jerusalem. He built towers at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the angle, and he fortified, he strengthened these towers. He built towers in the desert, and he dug many wells so that the people would have water to drink. King Uzziah also built a strong military force. He had 2,600 leaders, men of valor under him. Those 2,600 leaders led a great army of 307,500 mighty men. And these mighty men is what Uzziah worked with to defeat these enemies of the Philistines, the Ariabims, and the Mayunites. He also equipped his army. He made sure they didn't go into battle weak and without proper artillery. They had shields, they had spears, helmets, coats of mail. They had slings in which they could cast stones. He also made machines. Remember the towers that I spoke about? Well, he made sure that on those towers there were machines. Could you believe it during the biblical times that they had something called the machine and on the corner of these, these walls, 
the angle gate, the valley gate, the, Jerusalem, the corner gate. He had these machines stationed. And you know what these machines were able to do? They were able to cast stones. And in other words, they were our version of a cannon. Our version of a cannon. And when they needed to cast a stone into the enemy's camp, well, Uzziah was a man that, was, that facilitated these machines to be there for the availability of his army. And he committed himself to developing the kingdom of Judah. So much so, he also became a businessman. Could you imagine? He wasn't just a king. He, just, he didn't just facilitate his army with everything that they needed to be able to fight. He didn't just fortify the towers that were there. He made sure that he also invested in this kingdom. He built cities. And in the businesses, he got into rearing animals, man, after my own heart, and farming he sowed into the ground where he was planted. I wonder if you're sowing into the place in which you are planted. What are you giving into the community where God has planted you? He feared the Lord. And because he feared God, God made him to prosper in every way. However, don't you hate the howevers? Because they always let us know there's a curveball in this pitch. They always let us know that if you don't catch that curveball, you're going to strike out. However, as long as he feared the Lord, God caused him to prosper. As long as he looked to the Lord, there was prosperity there for him. But pride began to rise up within him. And old King Uzziah, in his pride, decided that he was going to go to the temple. And he was going to offer some incense before the Lord. But you see, during those times, only the consecrated priests of Aaron could operate in the temple in that fashion. Only those that were set apart, only those that were consecrated of God can bring the incense to the altar of the Lord. And so for Uzziah to think that he could do such a thing is a lofty thought, but it wasn't a God thought. It was wasn't something that God called of him to do. And so in he went with his uh, canter. I think that's our censer, whatever you call those things. And, and um, it, it was either made of terracotta, I would imagine in those days it would have been made of a clay type of pot. And in this is what, what the priest would carry to bring the incense to the altar. And as the priests see him doing this, Azariah comes forth and he says to him, no, 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 Uzziah, Uzziah, hold up. You can't be doing this. This is not something that is appointed for you to do. This is something only appointed to the priest. Uzziah, you need to stop. And Uzziah did not appreciate the challenge. He felt, why can I not offer the incense onto the altar? Why, why must it only be you? But who do you think you are? And so what he did was 
against the admonition of the priest. There will be times in your life where God will bring godly people into your life that will say, don't do that. Hold up there. Stop. And if you don't stop and adhere to their admonition, it will cost you. It will cost you, not because I said so, but because through the demonstration of God's word, it demonstrates to us that when we go against God's ways, it's going to cost us something. I told my kids when they were growing up, disobedience will always cost you something. You have one choice, choose to obey. Choose to obey. They hated when I would say you have one choice because they knew it meant doing something that I wanted them to do, not what they wanted to do. Choose to obey. And so Uzziah goes ahead and against the admonition of Azariah and the 80 priests, 80 priests that were there with him, he went ahead Anger was burning within him. And as these priests looked upon him, not only did the seed of pride give birth to anger, but it caused leprosy instantly to break out on his forehead. Right before the eyes of the priest, God gave a living example. When you go against my ways, when you go against my ordinances, there will be a cost. And so quickly they're ushering Uzziah out of the temple. Come, come, come. You got to get out of here. You have leprosy. What a tragic end for Uzziah. He was put out of the house of the Lord. He had to be separated. He had to be isolated. And no longer apart of the people that he was leading because he was unclean. And because he was unclean, he was excluded from entering the house of the Lord. Jotham, his son, therefore, had to take over and rule until Uzziah died. And so Uzziah was king for 52 years, but he ruled for 42. The other years, his son Jotham took leadership he had done so much for the people. He had brought the country forward. But now he was dead. That's your history lesson. That's the backdrop. That's the man who died. And in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah said this, I saw the Lord. In the, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. When I was in Africa in 2012, um, this, this young man that would translate uh, for me when, whenever I spoke, uh, he, you know, when you go to church in Africa, I just want to let you know it's not an hour service, not even a two-hour service. Oh, see, I cut out there as I said that. Not even a two-hour service. I got to tell you, you go there, be prepared. You're there for the day. And so we went to this one, one village, and um, it was just a little hut church. 
Our stage is bigger than the church that it was. And I, the, the people that crammed into that place was more than, <laughs> more than maybe here today. But anyways, he gets up and he speaks. And uh, he, he read this passage of scripture and he said, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And then he goes, what needs to die in your life? And all of a sudden, all these Africans began to break forth in worship and in praise. If somebody asked you what needs to die in your life, would it cause you to jump up and praise the Lord? I doubt it. You would, be, you would feel conviction. Oh my gosh, what do they see when they look at me? What are they seeing into my life? Oh, do they have a magnifying glass? Oh, do they see what I did last night? Do they know what I did this week? Oh my gosh, what are they seeing? What needs to die in your life before you see the Lord? What needs to die? And it always remained with me. I had to follow him and speak, and I felt the energy of the Lord going through him. Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself to seek God. He was instructed by Zechariah in the fear of God. But anger and pride took seed in his life, leaving him that isolated person. Do you feel isolated and excluded at times? Do you feel like maybe you're not a part of the body like others? Today is a day, if you have ever faced a time where you feel isolated, where you feel excluded, where you feel like you've been cut off, not a part of, for whatever reason, today is a day by the declaration of Hebrews 12 that we would lay aside everything that hinders us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those are them that went before us to the presence of the Lord. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings, which clings. Sin lays hold of us. We always interpret it as something we are holding on to, but sin clings to us like that nasty dog hair that even the lint brush can't get off. That so easily and closely clings to us let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking what to jesus looking to jesus the author the founder the perfecter of our faith for who who for the joy that was set before him for the joy that was set before him. This always grips my heart to know that the joy that was set before him. He saw me on the other side of the cross and he said, for melody, I'm going to the cross. That brought him joy to suffer, to know that his suffering would bring me into the kingdom. And that should be the same joy that springs forth in you. When you think of what he did, for you, it should stir up a joy of praise within your heart. For the joy that was set before him, look, what are we to do? We are to look to Jesus. When Isaiah looked to the Lord, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. How could he see the Lord if he was not looking to the Lord? 
He was sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the year King Uzziah died, says a lot. Says a lot. If you read the obituary, you would say there was a great man that died. There was a great man who accomplished great things for God, and he died. In the year King Uzziah died, says a lot. It may even have you saying, there was a great man who accomplished great things for God. There was a great woman who accomplished great things for God. And yet, there was a however in their life, they had a tragic end. So you can understand this morning that for Isaiah, he might be feeling a bit discouraged, a bit disillusioned. God, you brought us this king who brought us to the precipice, who brought us to the place of more artillery power, who brought us to the place of more wells that we can be watered, who brought us to the place of, of raising animals and farming and learning how our country can go ahead. God, what is this to mean that you should allow such a man who has done so much for us, who has advanced us so much to now die. God, where are you in all of this? Where are you in all of this? Perhaps these are the, the, the musing thoughts of Isaiah. I want to tell you, King Uzziah may be dead, but God is alive. King Uzziah may be dead, but God is alive. Our first glimpse of God this morning, our first peekaboo into who he is, is that he is alive. God is alive. He is not dead. I saw the Lord is what, you, what Isaiah declared from his own mouth. When he declares this, it lets us know as the readers, reading God's inspired words, it's not my words, it's not your words, it's not even Isaiah's words, but it's God's inspired word. He saw the Lord, and God wanted us to know through the mouth of Isaiah, your God is alive. He is not dead. He is alive. I saw the Lord. Job 36, 26 says this, indeed God is great. Beyond our knowledge, the number of his years is unsearchable. We don't know where God begins and he never ends because it's unsearchable. It's unsearchable. There is no history book, no science book. I don't care what your science teachers told you. You cannot find the birth date of God, nor could you find the day of his death, because it's unsearchable, according to his word. Psalm 90 verse 2 said, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, from the beginning to the end, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are God. Jeremiah 10 and 10, but the Lord, it is the true God. He is a living God. And what? The everlasting king. The everlasting king. He is not just there for once. 
He is there for always, Revelations 4, 9 through 10. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who what? Lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who what? Lives forever and ever. He is alive. He is alive. You are not worshiping a dead God. You are not worshiping a deaf God. You are not worshiping a God who just comes whenever he so pleases. You are worshiping a God who is alive, who is from everlasting to everlasting. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Where do we see God in this great vision of Isaiah? Where is he? He is on the throne. And so we see our second glimpse of God. He demonstrates his authority. He is the final authority. A great king may have left the throne on earth. Uzziah may have left his throne on earth. But the greatest king is still seated on high. The greatest king has not left his throne. He is positioned on his throne and his eyes go to and fro and he sees all that is taking place on his earth. For Isaiah to see the Lord and for Isaiah to record that he saw the Lord and to record that he is seated on his throne, he is establishing for you and I the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. A throne is what? A throne is defined as something, is defined as something as the power that, demonstrate, that is demonstrated for a king. A throne is, is defined as something that is a seat that is appointed for authority, a seat that is appointed for power, the chair where royalty would sit. God is sitting on his throne. Psalm 103, 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He lets us know through his word. God will always confirm his word with his word. He is seated on his throne. He doesn't sit on a chair in heaven, no. No, 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 he doesn't sit on a chair. Oh, I could sit on a chair, you could sit on a chair, but not God. He is seated on his throne. Sovereign kings don't sit on chairs, they sit on thrones. He is our sovereign king. A judge will sit on a throne. You and I won't sit on a throne, but a judge will sit on a throne. God is the ultimate judge. He is sitting on a throne. Those with proper authority and sovereignty sit on thrones. We don't belittle him. Pull up a chair, Jesus, have a seat. God, here, take a seat. He is on a throne. Isaiah, I saw the Lord, and he was seated on his thrones. Did not the sons of Korah see God's throne? In Psalms 45, verse 6, your throne, O God, is for what? Forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprighteousness. Jeremiah, on his sighting of God's throne room in Lamentations, in his book of laments, says to us, five, uh, Lamentations 5, 19, but you, O Lord, 
But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Do you not love how God is confirming? He is alive because he reigns forever, and he is a final authority. Why? Because his throne endures from generation to generation to generation to generation. Without end, his word confirms he's alive and he is on the throne. Isaiah may have been depressed. He may have been discouraged. He may have felt a bit defeated because his king was no longer alive. His king was now dead, but God said, don't you worry, Isaiah. I got this covered. I haven't left my throne. I'm still seated on the throne. My eyes are still on the affairs of my created earth. There's not one thing that has happened that I am not aware of. Don't you worry, Isaiah. I've got this covered. I will take care of every affair of the earth. I will take care of every concern of your heart. Don't you worry, Isaiah. You just keep your eyes on me. I'm giving you a glimpse of me. You just keep your eyes fixed on me because, Isaiah, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. How did Isaiah see the Lord? He was high and lifted up. He wasn't stuck on the cross. You know, this scripture is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus had accomplished all that he had done on the cross, where did he go? He went and he sat at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father. This is a foreshadowing. When Isaiah sees the Lord, he is seeing a foreshadowing of the answer that is to come for man's sin, the answer that is to come for man's despondency, the answer that is to come for man's brokenness, for man's bondage, for man being enveloped in all of the anxiety and worries and cares of the world. There is an answer, Isaiah. There is an answer, and the answer is high, and he is lifted up, and he is alive and he has a final authority Ephesians 1:19 says this what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe the third glimpse of God that we see in this passage is that he is the all-powerful he is the omnipotent God there is no one more powerful than he Great, he, what did Paul say in Ephesians? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? In other words, I can't even fathom it. When he asks what is it, he's not literally asking. He's asking in in an exhausting question as in, I can't even fathom his power. I can't even fathom his greatness. Revelations 19.6, then I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like what the roar of many waters, and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, what? The Almighty reigns. The all-powerful one reigns. The omnipotent one reigns reigns hallelujah hallelujah 
Isaiah couldn't bear this vision without falling face first. I know it. And yet we can sit and hear it broken up. Agree with a hallelujah, agree with an amen. But are we getting the glimpse of knowing who God is, that it is going to transform our life today, that our worship is never again the same. That the way we live for God is never again the same. God, he is the all-powerful, the omnipotent one, The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. What did God ask Abraham concerning the promise of a son? In Genesis 18, verse 14, is there anything too difficult for God? Jesus gives us the answer to that question in Matthew 19, 26. He says, with man it is impossible, but with God nothing is impossible. All things are possible. Why? Because he is the all-powerful one. He is the omnipotent one. He is high and he is lifted up. He is above all powers of the earth. There is no superpower that is greater than the power of the Most High. On July 29th, 1980, or was it 81, there was a lady named Lady Diana of Spencer. And she got married to a prince. Every girl's dream to marry a prince. (laughs) It was boasted at that time that Lady Diana's wedding dress was a silk ivory dress made of taffeta. And uh, this dress had a train 25 feet long. Now for the women that are in this room, You carry a 25-foot train on your head. And you tell me at the end of the day how your head feels. 25-foot long train. And can I tell you that beyond that train was another veil that was 153 yards long. 153 yards long. Who's not American in this house and can quickly do that math and find me the feet? I don't know. The value of her, her veil alone was the equivalency of this day, maybe about $36,000. Well, imagine even having that in your bank account. 459 feet was that veil. 459 feet! 459 feet trailed behind her with a 25-foot train. And the veil was 36,000 and some dollars to the equivalency of the day that we are living in right now. However, I have to tell you something, that though this dress was exquisitely designed for Lady Diana, though she took time with the seamstress and, and those that were creating the dress to be exactly how she wanted it, so much so that if a bleed of the information got to the public, there was a second dress that she could wear. 
that nobody would know about. Because she was soon to be a princess. 25-foot train. But she ran into a complications. Brother and sister, when Lady Diana went to get in her glass coach to drive to the church, her train and veil didn't fit next to her and her dad. That was a whole lot of material that had to be bustled up, crinked up, and fit into that ever so elegant glass carriage. In all of their efforts to impress, in all of the work that happened behind the scenes to create this beautiful dress with such a glamorous train and a veil that would highlight the train so that when Diana would enter into, I think it was St. Andrew's Cathedral, everybody in England and everybody in here in Canada at 4 a.m. in the morning would go, oh, Wow. Ah. Such a beautiful train. What's this got to do with the message? She entered into that, that sanctuary, and her train and her veil were wrinkled. They were wrinkled. In all of their efforts to make an impression, they missed the mark. During biblical times, kings would also wear a train. And the reason why they would wear a train is because the train is too heavy to carry. No kidding, 25 feet is a bit heavy. And so they would be able to sit. I cannot move. I must be served. Because my train is too heavy for me to move. And so you can understand the biblical illustration when the word of God says his train filled the temple. His train filled the temple. Because in biblical times when the king would not be able to get up because he was of dignity and of power and somebody should come and help him with his train and he would enter or move. What the world was trying to display to us at that time when Lady Diana would enter into the temple was she was of power. She was of elegance. But there's nothing that man could do that could outdo God. Because when God entered the temple, there was not a wrinkle and there was not a struggle. There was nothing that was overbearing. There was plenty of room. His train filled the temple. He wasn't in a glass coach. Oh, trust, touch me not. He was in his temple. He was seated on his throne. He was alive. He was demonstrating his authority and his power. And now we see that this leads us into our next glimpse of who this wonderful God is. He is the magnificent one because as we see his train filling the temple we are struck with awe and we say ah Lord God the train that clothed my Lord filled the temple but it was neither in the way nor wrinkled because he is pure he is the spotless lamb of God 
there is not a wrinkle in his life. And he comes to cleanse us. He is the all-powerful. He is the magnificent one. First Chronicles 29, 11 to 12 says this. And I'm going to read it from God's Word translation. It'll come up there in the ESV. Greatness, power, splendor, glory, and majesty are yours, Lord, because everything in heaven and on earth is yours. The kingdom is yours. Lord, you are honored as head of all things. Riches and honor are in front of you. You rule everything. You hold power and strength in your hands, and you can make anyone great, strong. Psalm 8, verse 1 says it even more to the point. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory where? Above the heavens. Why? Because the word of God confirms the word of God. Because he is seated on high. You have set your glory above the heavens. Hebrews 1 and 3 says, he is the radiance of what? Of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds what? The universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the magnificent one. God is magnificent. Why would God choose to show his splendor to Isaiah? Why would God choose to give Isaiah this glimpse of his power, of his magnificence, of his glory, of his position in the heavenly places? Why would God want Isaiah to know that he is seated on the throne. I believe John 1 and 14 gives us the answer that, to that question because it says that in, he became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and what? We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And I want to tell you this, that according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, that when our faces are unveiled and we behold his glory, what happens to you and I? We are transformed. We are changed. God is saying to Isaiah, Isaiah, I want you to see my glory because I have got a job for you to, to do. I've got a message for you to take to a people I've got you to have fire on your lips. Isaiah, I'm going to take the coals from the throat and I'm going to put them on your lips and I'm going to touch your lips. But Isaiah, you got to see my glory because if you don't see my glory, Isaiah, you're not going to change. You're not going to be transformed. You're going to stay the same. You're going to go from doubt to doubt, fear to fear, anxiety to anxiety. But Isaiah, I'm here to equip you. Isaiah, I'm here to change you. I'm here to transform you because you will have an unveiled face and you will see my glory and you will be changed from glory to glory. 
And so we come here to dip into Isaiah's vision. We come here to have a glimpse of Isaiah's vision so we can understand the magnificence of this great God, but greater yet to understand why it is important that we are changed and never left the same. You can't go to God and give him your life if you're going to hold on to your secret sin. You can't keep going to church dragging your ball and chain behind you. Leave your ball and chain at the door and don't pick it up on your way out. God comes to transform us. He comes to change us. He comes to deliver us. He comes to make us new. He comes to revitalize us. He comes to give us a vision. He comes to give us a hope. He comes to give us an understanding. His word is not there just to be a good history book. His word is there for you to read it. His word is there for you to understand who he is. Because when you understand who he is, you won't come to church and say, Oh, hallelujah. Oh, praise the Lord. Glory be to God. Hallelujah. You will say, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You won't just sit in your chairs, but you will arise. You will stand up. You will sing praises of God. Because you will have seen the Lord your God. Oh, sometimes we look at those who get excited for Jesus and we go, But do they not know they're in church? Yes, they know they're in church. And that's why they're worshiping in such liberty and such truth. Because they have seen the Lord. They have tasted of the Lord's goodness. They have tasted of his deliverance. They have tasted of his freedom. They know of his healing hand. They know of his wondrous works. They know of his provision. They know their God. And so I believe that God allowed Isaiah to see this glimpse of who he was so that you and I could enter into the same vision and say, oh God, May I see you as Isaiah did, that I may have a taste of you to bring it to the world that I live in. Oh God, I've listened to too many voices, too many voices that have said, you can't. No, you can't. You can't do that. God is not real. Don't believe all the things that your parents tell you. Don't believe all the things that your church says. God is not this. God is not that. Oh, that we would take the word of God and say, yes, you are. You are everything that this word tells me and more. You are everything that I need. You are my all-sufficient one. You are my mighty God. Oh, that we would enter into this text. The world was captivated by the beauty of Lady Diana, by her dress, but no one was changed when she entered into that cathedral. In all of their wow, in all of their ooh, while the TV broadcasters boasted, ooh, imagine having such a beautiful dress. Nobody was changed. Everybody left the cathedral the same. We all turned off the TV tired and grumpy because we got up at an ungodly hour just to watch somebody walk through a temple. Oh, but when God wakes you up, oh, when God wakes you up at four o'clock in the morning and when God gives you a vision of who he is, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, you'll be revitalized for the day that is ahead of you. Oh boy, you will be in awe and in wonder of who he is. 
Psalm 104 captures it the way we should be saying it. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and what? Majesty. Majesty. The splendor and the magnificent was so great there in the throne room that day that there were seraphim. You know that this is the only time in the word of God that this word seraphim is used? It's the only time. Do, look, you just go in your concordance and you're only gonna find one place where seraphim is used. It's right here. And the name seraphim means burning ones. Burning ones. Burning ones. When there's a presence of the Lord. When there is a presence of the Lord, there's going to be a burning. There's going to be a burning. What happened on the road to Emmaus? Christoph spoke of it two weeks ago. In Luke chapter 24, verse 32, they said, were not our hearts burning within us when he, when he divulged the scriptures to us, when he explained the word to us? Was not our hearts burning within us? You see, where there is the presence of the Lord, there's going to be an burning within you. What did Jeremiah say? He said, your word, I cannot keep it. Your word is in my heart like a burning fire, Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Like a burning fire, why? Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Today, he is dwelling within us. His word, the living word of Jesus Christ is within us. And I cannot contain it. It is burning like a fire, and I cannot contain it. Where there is the presence of the Lord, there is a burning. And so these seraphim introduce us to the next glimpse of this magnificent God. God is to be revered. We are to have reverence for God. These seraphim have a deep reverence for God. They have so much reverence for God. We have to look at this description of these seraphim. It says in verse 2, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. You know, the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20, you cannot see my face, Moses, for no man shall see me and live. Apparently, this applies to seraphim. Did you consider that whenever you read this passage? Because it said they covered their face. With two wings, they covered their face. Even the seraphim are too lowly to look upon their God. Even the seraphim are too lowly to look upon their God. With two wings, they covered their feet. The most humblest part of our body 
I asked you all to take off your shoes and socks today, those that are wearing socks in the middle of summer, uh, it, it, most of you wouldn't want your toes to be seen. Because some of us don't like the way our toes are. Some are big and clunky and corned and calloused and, and fungus and everything else. And so these seraphim hid the most humblest part with their wings, demonstrating to us the reverence that they had. And though they were sinless beings created by God, they had enough within them of reverence to notice their unworthiness before this magnificent presence. If the seraphim of God recognize the magnificence of the presence of Lord, how much more should we who have his written text before us, who have through his text the demonstration of the many wonders of who he is, and yet we sit. Hallelujah. Yes, pastor. Praise the Lord. I am so hungry. I wonder when they'll finish. Instead of being captivated with what the word of God is saying to us regarding who our God is. The seraphim were captivated by him and they worshipped him in showing their veneration before him. What did they demonstrate to us? Why would God find it necessary to show us how the seraphim worshipped him? To let you and I know that our veneration, our, our, our worship goes before anything. The first thing we should do in the morning, hallelujah, Lord, thank you for yet another day. Oh, the bones are a little bit more crickety. I've got a little more. I found a new ache. I couldn't do this yesterday. It hurts now to do that. And oh, but hallelujah, Lord, you have given me a new day. I have a new day to live and to breathe and to sing of your greatness, to be a demonstration of your power to those that are around me. It's a new day, Lord, that I will meet new faces, new people to tell of who you are. Oh, God, what a great day. And so we have this demonstration of the seraphim who were sinless but we are not sinless and yet they knew to cover those areas why the eyes cause us to look upon things that we should not look upon the eyes cause us to sin the eyes cause us to lust after things the eyes cause us to compare the eyes cause us to go places we shouldn't go oh and why did they cover the feet? Because sometimes we go places that God has not made a part of our path, that God has not planned for our future concerning his plans for our lives. Why? Because sometimes our feet take us places where Christians ought not to go. And so these seraphim were a great demonstration of showing that when we worship God and when we come before God, it's about covering and going under his cover. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. You see, Mary knew this. Somewhere in Mary's hearing, she heard of this 
vision that Isaiah had. Maybe at Shul. Maybe when they talked of the things of the Old Testament. She heard of it. And what did that do to Mary? Oh, when Jesus came to the house, Mary was caught up in worshiping her Savior. She was caught up in just venerating him and glorifying him. And Martha's like, Master, don't you see? And Martha's all perturbed. Look at me. I'm serving the offering. I'm greeting people as they come in. I'm preparing for this and I'm preparing for that. And I'm doing all these ministries in the church. And look at her and look at him. All they do is hallelujah. Don't they know of all the work that needs to be done? And Martha had it all wrong. And God, Jesus, corrected her. Because Mary chose the better things. Have you come today to choose the better things? Have you come today to worship the Lord? To set aside everything of your day and find yourself worshiping him? Oh, but you don't know what I have to do today. You don't know what I have to do today. But it'll go a whole lot better if you give it to God. If you give praise to God, if you give glory to God, if you pause and you pray and you engage with him, every sequence of your day will fall into place. And so our next glimpse of these angels, what these angels do is they demonstrate to us his holiness. Because it says in verse 3, And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I don't want you to miss what's happening here. They're not looking at Jesus and saying, Holy, holy, holy are you, O Lord. That's not what the text says. You see, we miss it because we assume. Don't assume. And one called to another and said. And one called to another and said. You know what they were doing? They were encouraging each other in the worship service. Holy, 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 Elaine, is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They were saying one to another. They were worshiping one to another. They were worshiping the Lord and encouraging each other. Oh, why does she always get up there and do that little praise bit? Because we want to encourage you to worship the Lord. Because the seraphim had it all right. They were there as their example. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is the Lord God Almighty and if you haven't grabbed a hold of it you don't utter back holy is the Lord God Almighty yes holy is the Lord God Almighty holy is the Lord God Almighty hallelujah hallelujah they were declaring his glorious nature his character to one another he is holy why is it so significant that we understand that God is holy? Holy to be defined as something that is set apart. Something that is consecrated for a purpose. 
You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You've been set apart. But in order to be set apart, there had to be one who was more holier than you. There had to be one who was a demonstration of the very essence of what holiness is. And that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. That one is the Lord Most High. But why are they saying it, holy one, holy two, holy three? Why do they say it three times? Is that a formula that I must practice? No, 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 there's no equations of man that could be defined here. Holy just simply could be representing the Trinity acknowledging that there is God the Father. Holy are you, O God the Father. Holy are you, God the Son. Holy are you, God the Holy Spirit. It could be as simple as that. But even like, let's not forget that in the Hebrew tradition, to emphasize something once was to declare its importance. To emphasize something twice was to drive home the importance. And to emphasize it a, three, a third time was to say that there was a distinction about this. In their Hebrew language, it was about repetition. If something was repeated, there was something distinct distinctly wanting to be highlighted. And the distinction here is the holiness of God. Don't miss the holiness of God. The seraphim are saying to you and I, the reader, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. They are declaring his holiness to the highest possible power that there could be. They are making the emphasis to the highest point that they can make it. What does it mean that God would be holy at that highest place? If he is God and he is already separated. If holiness defines something that is set apart, Surely you can't be saying that God is set apart when he is God. What does he have to set apart himself from? He is set apart from us, his creation. He is set apart from us, his creation. In that he was not created. He was and is and always will be. And so we are set apart. He is set apart because he is not like us, fallible to death and sin. He is set apart because he always was and he always will be, going back to confirm that he is alive from everlasting to everlasting because God's word always confirms God's word. There is no lie within his word. He is set apart from us. Why? Because we are human and he is divine. He's not a Superman. He's not Thor. He's not Batman. Nor is he Batwoman. Nor is he Wonder Woman. 
He is not that whole Justice League, nor any of these super Marvel people that I can't even name to wonder who they are. He is God. He is divine. He is above all things, and through him, all things hold together. He can't be measured. He can't be calculated because he is divine. That is why he said to Moses, tell Pharaoh in, uh, in Exodus 3, 3 verse 14, I didn't give it to the media team. I am that I am has sent you. God's holiness is part of everything because uh, everything he is and everything he does. God's power is holy power. God's love is holy love. God's wisdom is holy wisdom. Holiness is not an aspect of God's personality. Holiness is who God is. It's not a piece of his personality. Oh, she's friendly. Oh, she's loving. Oh, he's understanding. He is holy. That is who he is. And what else does the seraphim want us to know? That the whole earth is full of his glory. The latter part of this praise to one another. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. As they looked around, they saw a demonstration of his glory in everywhere that they looked. They saw his holiness. They saw his glory. They saw his splendor because they saw him for who he was. There is something that happens when the glory of God shows up in a house. There is something that sh happens when the glory of God shows up in a house. When these seraphim declared that the whole earth was full of his glory, something took place and it leads us to our final glimpse of God. He is glory. This seventh glimpse is God is glorious. When God shows up in a house, are you ready for what happens when God shows up in a house? Are you ready for what happens when God shows up? In a house, Exodus 24. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. When they saw the glory of the Lord, when Moses was up on the mountaintop, what happened? They saw a fire, and not just any old fire, may I say, but a glorious fire. Exodus 33:18 says, Moses said, show me your glory. Have you cried out? When was the last time you said, God, show me your glory? God, demonstrate your glory to me. God, give me an understanding of your glory. God, show me your glory. Exodus 40, verses 34 to 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because why the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle because there were seraphim saying holy 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 
holy, 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 holy. And as everyone began to capture that essence, and as those seraphim began to capture what was happening, and as the people in the tent of meeting began to revere God and and go before him, that meeting place began to be covered with the cloud of God's glory because he was demonstrating himself to his people. How is God demonstrating himself to you and I today? Watch this. These seraphim have one, one occupation. One occupation. You might be wearing several hats, but these seraphim have one occupation. One thing that they've been called to do, give praise and worship to their God. Give praise and worship to their God. Give honor to the Lord because he is enthroned in the heavens. They sang powerfully, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. That what happened, the doorsteps were shaken. What happened when Paul, when he was in jail and when he was in chains and he began to sing what? The praises of the Lord. What happened in that jail cell? Tell me, talk to me. You've just been a little too quiet. The chains fell off. The prison doors became open. And what happened? The jail guard began to be afraid. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. I'm going to lose my job. God forbid any of these prisoners got out. But when they sing the praises of God, when you begin to worship God, when you begin to acknowledge his presence, even in your bondage, I got to tell you this, that your chains will fall off. Those prison doors will be open. You will be set free. You will walk out. And those devils that have been watching your post to make sure you were held captive oh they will be in fear why because the glory of God comes to fill the place and there will be a shaking when the Lord shows up in this house there will be a shaking there will be a demonstration of his power not because I said so but because the word of God said so when the Lord shows up in your life in your bedroom in your car, in your office place. You know what's going to happen when he shows up in that place? There's going to be a shaking. Everything that's in your life that needs to pass through the sift of God is going to be shaken out of the sift of God. And it'll all fall out those holes. Why? Because there's a whole lot of shaking going on when God gets the glory that is due to his name. When his glory comes, and shows up in a place, and hovers over that place. That life is never the same. You will never be the same when the glory of God shows up on you. What, my, what will my friends at, at school, what will people think of me? They're gonna call me crazy, let them call you crazy. God is going to transform you. What will my dad think? What will my mom think? What will my family think? When all of a sudden the angry father that came home from work disgruntled and upset every single day at the mistreatment of his boss now walks in and says, Hallelujah, honey, I'm home. 
because the glory of God showed up on him and he brought that glory to work and all of a sudden the boss didn't treat him the same because there was a radiance about him there was a touch not zone there was something there that prevented the evil words of the enemy from penetrating into his spirit because he knew who he was as a child of God and so yeah the darts were thrown oh yeah the spear went forth and it tried to lodge its place in his heart but he knew who he entrusted his heart to he entrusted his heart to the king most high and wherever he went he brought the glory of God with him oh what about the mother who's frustrated with folding clothes and scrubby stains out of the clothes and making meal after meal and the kids constantly complain this again and now the mom is happily putting the meal on the table, happily serving it. It doesn't matter if it was a third time that week. And all of a sudden, the family is enjoying it. Why? Because she brought a little bit of God's glory into her house. Oh, when the glory of God hits you, you're not the same. A whole lot of change takes place. You, put it, you are put in as a vessel into God's sift and he shakes it and he runs it under his blood and he lets everything that is unclean and impure just fall through the holes of that sift. And he's like, that's right, that's right. The more I shake, the more it comes out. The more I shake, the more it comes out. And the more it comes out, the more you are shining and radiating for me. Oh yeah, I'm gonna shake you up until there's no shaking to be shaken because I'm about to demonstrate my glory so that you could take my word to a world, to a people that doesn't know of me, to a people who criticizes me, to a people who doesn't believe in me. Revelations 4 and 11, worthy are you, O Lord, and God to receive glory, honor, and power for you have created all things. Uh, if the worship team can come forward. And by your will they existed and were created. You were created. You were created and you were created to worship. Shouldn't we sing with the same heart and passion as those seraphim? Shouldn't we sing with the same intensity as those that were before the Lord? Worthy are you, O Lord. You deserve to receive the glory, the honor, the power. Shouldn't we be like this? Do these angels have more to thank God for than you and I? Consider your life. What are you thankful for? When was the last time you were thankful? The house was filled with smoke, and this great smoke is a signature of his presence to remind us that he is there. Because as we read in Exodus, the pillar of cloud was a representation of his presence. He went with the children of Israel in the desert, demonstrating himself as a cloud. His presence was ever with them. The smoke on Mount Sinai was a demonstration of his presence. The cloud of his Shekinah glory that filled the temple in Kings 
chapter 8, 1 Kings, was a demonstration of his glory. A cloud of glory comes, brothers and sisters, for what reason? To mark the presence of God in the house. To mark the presence of God in your life. That you would never be the same. I pray that you don't read Isaiah 6, 1 through 4 as just a vision. But I pray that you will read it as God demonstrating to you who he is. He is alive. He is the final authority. He is all-powerful. He is magnificent. He is to be revered. He is holy. And he is to be glorified in all things and through all things. Let's rise to our feet this morning. Let's rise to our feet this morning. And just engage. Would you set the climate of the atmosphere where you are today? Would you invoke the very presence of God where you are today? Would you invite the cloud, the weightiness of his presence, the kabod of his presence, the Shekinah glory into the pew where you are today? Who's to say that somebody beside you won't be touched because you are calling on the name of the Lord, because you are like the seraphim, worshiping him, glorifying him, calling him to be holy, calling him to be magnificent. Would you recognize the train of his robe filling the temple of your life? We are to be the temple of the Most High. Let the train of his robe fill your temple and let it consume you, that he consumes you head to toe, that the very essence of who he is is demonstrated through your life. Today, turn the place where you are sitting, the place where you are standing into a holy altar. If you want to come forth, the altars are set apart. You can make an altar here at the front. You can make an altar under your pew. But I'm asking you, engage as Isaiah engaged. And see the Lord. That when you go home today, you won't have to say to your family, I saw the Lord. They will look to you and say, I see the Lord through you. Thank you, Jesus.